following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. It's great to be with you guys. Let's open our Bibles. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 28 this morning at the end of the chapter. Uh, what a what a remarkable week we have coming up here. Um, this coming week, September 7th, if you think about it, uh, maybe you might or you might not, that is the exact date of when we had our first Sunday service 20 years ago. Uh, it is absolutely stunning to me. Um, my wife has a great debate with me that she believes the church started 10 years prior uh, because of all the investment that the Lord has allowed us to do in this community. And, and September 7th, 2003 was just the launching point of everybody recognizing there had already been a church that was being built. Um, but yeah, 20 years. So next Sunday, if you have been a part of our church, if you know friends that have been a part of our church, uh, maybe they're out of town or whatever, not, whatnot, we would just encourage you to invite them to come. Um, we want to take some time really to just remind ourselves again what our really our, our, our life verse is as a church, Psalm 115 verse 1, not to us, O Lord, but to your great name be all the glory. That, that's really what our hope is for next week. All right, Matthew chapter 28. This morning we're going to start a new sermon series called the Great Commission. And it's important for us right now in the life of our church and really in the season of the community that we're in that we as elders really think this is important for us. Um, one, one reason is you, you've got to change the seasons happening, right? You can tell that. Hopefully uh, we're going to get that, that lengthy September summer that we all love here without the rain just now beginning to blast us. We would love for this to be a one-hit wonder, get the fires out of the way, and then give us this little bit of time that we can enjoy the sun a little bit longer. But we are moving into a change of seasons, and any time that happens, at least in, in my heart, is it's a great moment for us to pray and expect God to open up new opportunities for the gospel. Because we're going to encounter different people. One reason that happens here is is that because when the seasons change, specifically in this part of the world, things begin to get dark physically, relationally, spiritually, and emotionally. You will find that in the church, anyway, what I found in my pastoral ministry is my counseling load goes up after October 15th, and it usually ends about April 15th. Now, what's that time of the year? It's our rainy season. People are inside. Suddenly now they're more open to talk about what their own issues of life are, and they're really willing to begin to take an internal look at themselves because the rest of the year, April 16th to October 14th, they're chasing the sun. And wherever the sun is, they're going to be, and they're going to be outdoors running crazy with things. And so as seasons change, we need to be thinking about opportunities for the gospel. Some of you started school this last week. And, and there's new friendships, new relationships, new kids that you're teaching, new, new teachers that you're working alongside of, and you should be praying and thinking and expecting opportunities for the gospel. But there's another reason why we feel it important to do this series is because some of you who are new to our church have wondered, what is our strategy for making disciples? What does life at CLF look like to help you be equipped to go to your world and make disciples of Christ. And 
And to be honest with you, with our 20th anniversary on the horizon, we just thought, you know what? It's a great time to talk about what we've done and why we have done it. Not just the what, but the why. And that's what we want to do in this series. But there's another reason that we want to bring this up at this time is there's a lot of confusion, specifically even in our community, about what makes for faithful disciple-making. Our goal is not to throw shade on people who do it differently than us, but rather... We just want to faithfully sow and water gospel seeds that honors the Lord, respects other people, and fulfills the role that we believe God would have us to fulfill in our world. We're not looking to make a name for ourselves. This is not about making a bunch of people who become members of CLF and we kind of put a stamp on their hand or they get a cool t-shirt. We're looking for people who truly are converted to Christ, that are discipled into Christ, and grow to become disciple makers along with us. We, we just simply want to graciously, gently, and respectfully make disciples locally and disciples globally. That's, that's the aim of what the series is after. We just want to clarify some of that confusion so that you can look with us at God's word and not, and be, if you will, see what God's word has to say about these particular issues. So today, to start a series on the Great Commission, we're going to start with a sermon from the Great Commission, which is Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. So why don't you stand with me again, and then we're going to read this text, and then I'm going to pray after we're done reading this. We stand here at the reading of God's word because we believe it is it is inspired, it is true, it is God-breathed, and it, it should adjust our thinking of how we do life, not expect us to twist these words to match with our lives. So here's what Matthew wrote in Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful today that we can gather in one location and we can worship the risen Christ together. And we're grateful that you have been faithfully at work in our church for your glory and for the advancement of your gospel. And I pray today that you would open our eyes to these truths that are in this text. And Lord, give us a, give us a big vision for what you're doing. And then help us to see how we should interact with that locally, in our own homes, in our own hearts. And where we need adjustment, would you adjust us today and do that by your kindness and your love for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, if you're new with us, um, you got a bulletin, and on the backside of the bulletin is the outline, and... The outline generally has a big idea at the top of it. And here's what we want to learn today in our sermon on the Great Commission. Because Jesus is the King, His people through His power will make disciples of all nations and He promises to empower us as we go. I'm going to read that again. Because Jesus is the King, 
His people through his power will make disciples of all nations and he promises to empower us as we go. Now let me just give you a little bit of a background to the book of Matthew and what we're looking at because I'm a big fan of understanding not just why text is in the Bible but why is it in the book of the Bible that we're particularly looking at. And the, the, the Gospel of Matthew was written and particularly concerned with Matthew's Jewish friends and family. He wanted them to see that Jesus was indeed the Jewish king and the Jewish Messiah and the Savior for the world. And this book has a distinctly Jewish flavor. He started the book by revealing that Jesus' heritage is traced all the way back to Abraham, who is the father of the Jewish people. And throughout the book, what Matthew does is he points us to the fact that Jesus fulfilled a whole lot of Jewish prophecies, and he talked about Jesus' Jewish heritage, but he also talked about something interesting. He talked about the fact that Jesus never traveled beyond Israel's borders, and he made that really clear in the, in the gospel. When commenting about the book of Matthew, R.C. Sproul wrote these words. So when you read Matthew, you should read it with this idea in mind. This book has been called, even by critics of historic Christianity, the greatest book ever written. So when we come to the Great Commission, many times we come to the Great Commission with a Western mindset looking at the text outside of the context that it was written to in Matthew chapter 28. The Great Commission has Jewish connections to it. That's why in our big idea, you'll notice some particular phrases. Jesus' kingship, making disciples of all nations, and you'll notice as well, going in his power. See, all those things are what Matthew was trying to say to the Jewish people about the transition that Jesus has made in this great commission and how his mission looks radically different than the way they had been living their lives. What you and I do is we come to Matthew 28, we throw in all of our Western mindset into it, and we miss a fulfillment that is being discussed and a direction that God is making to the ends of the earth and to the end of all history that he's talking about in the Great Commission. And that's what we want to see this morning. So let's start with the prelude and the power of the commission. You're going to see this in verses 16 through 19. In the beginning of this chapter, and you'll look back if you have your Bible with you, you can look back at the beginning of Matthew 28, and he gives us details about Jesus' resurrection. And twice in that section of Scripture, once from the angel who rolled the stone away, and once from Jesus, the ladies, the the ones who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, are told to go to Galilee where they're to meet Jesus. And in chapter 28, verse 16, you'll notice that they they made it there. They came to Galilee, and they're going to this mountain that Jesus had designated. Now, what's intriguing about Galilee is when the 11 disciples went to Galilee, there's a bit of an ironic twist in them going to Galilee. Galilee was known to be, it was called Galilee of the Gentiles. In other words, it was seen as an area where Gentile people were, and normally, if you will, they kind of, the Jewish people avoided this area, but in a strange twist of irony, Jesus, to give his great commission to go out to all nations, is bringing his people together in Galilee of Gentiles to send them out to the Gentiles. It's remarkably important to the story of the great commission. 
When the disciples saw Jesus after he had been raised from the dead, they did exactly what the ladies had done when they first saw Jesus. They bowed down and they worshipped him. We are told that some doubted, and if you know your Bibles very well, you know this is really true because there's a man named Thomas in particular who was known as Doubting Thomas who wanted to see the wounds of Jesus before he believed. Most commentators say this doubt was more like shock or hesitation because it didn't seem real. You can imagine, if you will, if somebody you had seen died, came to dinner three days later. What would be your shock and hesitation, right? I had an old pastor friend of mine who grew up in the hills of Mississippi, and they were so poor they could not in, they could not embalm people's bodies. Rather, they did they tied them down with twine in their caskets. And he remembers being in a in a funeral service as they had the open casket and the twines came undone, and that body sat straight up in the casket. He said that place emptied in about ten seconds. Shock and disbelief. That, that's what went on in this moment. But I want you to notice what most of them did. They worshipped. They bowed down to the risen Christ and they worshipped him. Now that's important because you're going to notice something that at the outset of the Great Commission, as we're being introduced to the Great Commission, what is mentioned first? The worship of Jesus. Worship is the prelude to the Great Commission. And it tells us something about the Great Commission. See, when we think about the Great Commission and we think about sharing the gospel with our friends or making disciples, probably if I know you well enough to know, and I've had this conversation with many of you, you feel a low-grade guilt for not doing it enough. Many times we feel guilt-tripped or manipulated into evangelism. We get browbeat by strong personality preachers who tell us we got to get out and do this and we got to serve Christ and because Jesus died for us, we got to live for him and all these motivational cliches. But I want you to notice something. Behind the heart of the Great Commission is worship. It's about joyful devotion. It's about being in awe of the risen Christ. It's about standing amazed in the presence of the risen Christ who has lived in your place, died in your place, rose again, and is now seated at the right hand of God. See, the Great Commission is about worshipers of Jesus telling others about the one we worship. That's what it is. It's hearts that are filled with love for the Savior, not hearts that are filled with drudgery or just want to check something off a list or want to get the evangelism monkey off our backs so our preacher can stop getting on us about sharing the gospel. No, 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 no. The prelude for the Great Commission is worship. It's heartfelt devotion. It's really about amazement. Now this tells us something about this commission. That it's about helping others simply see the great worth and value of Jesus. It's about adorning the gospel of Christ in such a way that others hear from your life and see from your life this devoted follower of Christ and they hear from them the one that they worshiped and the one who has changed them forever for the purpose of that they, those people, those non-Christians might worship him as well. That's the goal. The Great Commission is about worship. It's about, it's about worshipers 
going after other people who might become worshipers. That's the prelude. You're going to notice that in the text. But you're going to notice, though, that's not the power of the Great Commission. You're going to see this in verse 18. The power of the Great Commission is Jesus' authority. All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. What's intriguing is, again, going back into the book of Matthew, Matthew talks about the authority of Jesus often in his book. In Matthew 7, verse 29, it talks about the authority he has as a teacher. This is directly after the Sermon on the Mount. And people came around marveling that he taught as one with authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew chapter 9 talks about his authority to forgive sins. In Matthew 21, verse 23, the Jewish leaders challenged his authority. By what authority do you do these things? And you'll notice in Matthew 28, verse 18, after Jesus has fulfilled his earthly ministry, lived perfectly, died in our place for our sins, and rose again, what is Matthew declaring very clearly? Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. John Piper wrote something very intriguing about this point that I think we should pay close attention to. He said, Jesus was, always has been, always will be God. It is precisely the God-man, Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Savior, triumphant over sin and Satan, exalted to the right hand of God and installed as the Lord of the universe. The Son of God always had total authority in heaven and on earth. But when he had done the great work of redemption once and for all, God exalted him as the God-man, the Redeemer, the risen one to his right hand. And now, as never before, put the the rule of the universe and the mission of the church into the hands of a man, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary. Son of God. See, when Jesus cried, it is finished on the cross and satisfied God's wrath by dying in our place for our sin. And when he, when God raised him up from the dead to conquer death and the grave, God gave Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth as the God-man, as our representative before God. So we could say, as Timothy would, that there is one man between, but there's one mediator between God and man. It's the man, Christ Jesus. We could also say, it's the king, Christ Jesus. The text doesn't just say any type of authority, does it? It says, it says all, all authority. Friends, that means... The authority to forgive your sins. The authority to heal the sick, to raise the dead. The authority to create all things. The authority to raise up kings and presidents and senators and governors and congressmen and take them down. The authority over Satan and his minions. The authority over all the affairs of human history. The authority over all of salvation and the conversion of sinners. All authority. And all authority means... He has all authority 
over and in the Great Commission and the authority over the world to send his church into the world for that mission that he has called them to accomplish. See, Jesus has all authority over heaven and earth. And we're going to notice in the text, which is fascinating, is Jesus connected his authority with the Great Commission. Notice what he says in verse 19. Go, therefore. Now again, if you've been with us for very long and you know much about the way we teach here, you anytime you see a therefore, you always wonder, what is it there for? Right? <clears throat> what is it there for? It's pointing back to the verse previous when Jesus said, all authority <clears throat> is given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go. In other words, because Jesus has all authority, we go. Because he is a supreme authority, we go. His mission and his kingdom on earth could not be accomplished if he were not the authority over heaven and earth. So we go because he's the authority over all things. Now, just for a moment, I'll do this more next week when we talk about history a little bit. You might say, well, how do we know that Jesus is the authority over heaven and earth? Well, we know from what the Bible tells us, but let me just give you an example of this. You know because so many thousands of Christians before you have gone. The gospel started with one man named Jesus. He gave the disciples to the gospel to 11 disciples and 12 disciples who then shared that gospel with 3,000 people in Jerusalem And then one day persecution spread in Jerusalem and they did what? They scattered and took the gospel with them. And by the end of the book of Acts, that gospel has gone from Jerusalem all the way into Rome. And it went from Rome to the ends of the earth to the point that you are here today revealing Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth because people understood he is and they went. The power of the Great Commission is that Jesus has Authority over heaven and earth. All authority. This tells us that nothing will stop this commission from happening because it's dependent on the king's authority, which will never fail. You are aware of that, right? That the king at the right hand of God will never resign, will never step down, and will never be conquered. And you are aware that because of that, that means that his commission will be accomplished because that king will see to it. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish these things. It means that no enemy will overcome him. No enemy has will step in and try to take him over because he has authority over them all. He has supreme authority and supreme power over his commission. Now the prelude is worship. The power is Jesus' authority. So let me just ask you, brothers and sisters, is Jesus so dear to you? That your worship and adoration and amazement of him causes you to talk about him because of what he's done for you. Is he that dear to you? And do you believe that he has such authority that you have no fear of going? Worship is the prelude. Jesus' authority is the power. Now let's look at the second point, which is an important fulfillment. Now again, remember, Matthew's book has Jewish overtones. And in this great commission, he brought Jesus' connection to the Jewish forefather, Abraham, back once again on the forefront. 
Look with me at God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, when God told Abraham some very unique things. So at the outset of the Jewish nation, what does he have planned for God's people? And he says this, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What's intriguing is, just like Matthew, at the beginning of his book, traces Jesus' Jewish heritage back to Abraham, now, at the very last paragraph of his book, he shows us another connection to God's promise to Abraham. In Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. That's a universal, worldwide promise that was not to be limited to the Jewish people. It was a call from the Jewish people for them to be a blessing. And the Great Commission at the end of Matthew 28 shows us how this is fulfilled. Listen to what R.C. Sproul said about this particular text. He said, where then was the universal blessing that was promised to Abraham or to the Jewish people? Did not, Jesus did not take the gospel to all nations of the world personally. He left that task for his bride, the church. We see this in the passage that is before us in this chapter. With that, the promise God had made to Abraham began to be fulfilled, and it is still being fulfilled as the church carries out its mission. What's intriguing about that is, in the context of Matthew's book, the Great Commission doesn't just tell us to go make disciples. See, that's where we in the in our Western mindsets just think, this is all about just making disciples. No, this is actually a declaration of the kingship of Christ. What Matthew is doing is connecting the Great Commission to Jesus' Jewish heritage and declaring that Jesus is indeed the king over all the universe. The Great Commission really is like a sign. It's like a signpost telling us that Jesus has come to fulfill God's promise to Abraham. This was Matthew's way of connecting Jesus to the Jews and to the worldwide promise of God blessing all nations through Abraham. Because what was Jesus? He was a Jew. And he came into the Jewish nation to declare to them the gospel. Who were those first 12 apostles? They were Jews. And what did they do? They spread this gospel through all the known world to where it came to all of us who are Gentiles in this room today. See, God, it's intriguing. Abraham blessed the Jews. But Jesus blesses all nations. It's a big fulfillment. And we see this in verse 19 when Jesus says something fascinating. Go therefore and make disciples, and notice this, of all nations. See, in the Jewish mindset, this would have been stunning. You and I are so used to going everywhere, going doesn't seem like a big deal to us. I mean, I... I remember vividly in 1993 when I knew the Lord was moving me from Dallas, Texas to Roseburg, Oregon, and it was as clear as a clarion bell that I was to move. I had no money to my name. I had a Macintosh computer and a Honda Civic. I had no place to live, and I got on the road to come to Roseburg, Oregon to get involved in some little dinky Christian school that's now out in Dixonville. I had no idea. what the, I'm so used to going. That's what we do. But here's something fascinating. 
Once the Jewish people entered the promised land, there is not one command that you can find that tells them to go and expand their borders. They were told to stay. What you normally read about is people coming to see in Israel what God has done. Think about the Queen of Sheba. She's from Egypt. She hears about Solomon, and she comes, and she sees what all is going on in Solomon and his wisdom. Think about King Hezekiah, who foolishly one day decides to invite the king of Babylon in to just come and see all the riches of Israel. Think about the temple being built in one location in Jerusalem for everybody to gather around, come and see what the Lord has done in Israel. And this is even continued in Jesus's when he came on the scene. Prior to his life, death, and resurrection, prior to his death and resurrection, at one point he told his disciples to not go beyond the borders of Israel. But notice what happens after the resurrection. After receiving authority over heaven and earth, notice the change. Go and make disciples. There is a subtle yet significant switch from come and see to go and tell. Ian Campbell put it this way. The whole world is to become the theater of the church's work and mission. At the beginning of the gospel, meaning Matthew, the nations came to Jesus in the persons of the wise men of the east. But now, at the end of the gospel, Jesus sends his church to the nations. This is why it's significant that Jesus had his disciples meet him in Galilee of the Gentiles. He gave them the commission to go to the non-Jewish nations, the Gentiles, from an area that was known for the amount of Gentiles living in it. So the prelude of the Great Commission is worship. The power is Jesus' authority. And this commission fulfills everything that God promised to his people from the beginning of time. So what you're reading in the Great Commission, friends, is you're reading God saying, if you want to know how I fulfill all my promises, this is it. And you're seeing it from beginning to end. I'll write tomorrow about what you see in Revelation chapter 7 of the fulfillment of this commission where people from every tribe, nation, and tongue are all gathered around the, the throne of Jesus to worship him. And you've got from Genesis 12 to Matthew 28 to Revelation 7 this worldwide campaign of God to do what he's doing to make disciples of all nations. Now, let's look at the next point, which is thinking globally while acting locally. See, the Great Commission really is this 30,000 foot flyover. Go make disciples of all nations. It's like a macro version. Right? People, we're working on a very succinct kind of mission statement for the church, and people have begged me for this for years. I said, look, the mission statement is found in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Do we have to make something new when Jesus did a pretty good job of it? Right? I mean, it's really there. Right? It's a macro picture. It's a vision statement. It's a mission It's a flyover. It's about all nations, every tribe, every tongue. But just for a moment, think about how daunting this would have seemed to 11 men who had just watched their Savior get beat up, crucified, and is now raised in front of them. Imagine how hard this would be for them. They're from all all from small-town Israel, small occupations. Some were fishermen. Some were tax collectors whom were hated by the Jewish people, but every one of them were regular, ordinary men. And, and here they're told, 
leave Galilee of the Gentiles and go make disciples of all nations. I just imagine Peter going, yeah, right. Look at, look at John over here. Really? And maybe that's how you feel. You look at your own life and you think, dude, disciples of all nations for real? That's your job, preacher. We're all just ordinary people from small town Roseburg, Oregon. Our, our upbringing is normal, average, and seemingly inconspicuous. Yet, you have this commission that Jesus is giving to his entire church universal that is crystal clear. Go make disciples of all nations. Notice he didn't say, pastors go make disciples. Or he didn't say, just apostles go make disciples. He gathered 500 people together and told them all, go make disciples of all nations. It's a 30,000 foot global view. And doesn't it seem overwhelming? Last year I was in Cebu City, Philippines, and I was on the 13th floor of this hotel that they put us up in, and it overlooked this city where there are, I don't know how many people are there, and it was absolutely overwhelming. I looked down at the traffic as it was just mounted up on top of one another, not hardly moving. And I said, Lord, I don't know how you are going to make disciples of all nations when there's this many people. And I was there for a reason. I was there to ordain some pastors of a small local church to, if you will, commission them to make disciples of their own language. I was reminded of this small work of the gospel that started with Jesus, that went to 11, they went to 3,000, that blew up through the Roman Empire, that now came to us and landed with me in my heart in the Philippines on the 13th floor as I'm overwhelmed that he's making disciples. And it's almost like the Lord was reminding me, why would you doubt when I've already started it? It feels overwhelming. And I don't know about you, even though our world feels smaller because of social media and the internet and the ability to travel globally quickly, it seems crazy big. And I can hear some of you. I've talked to some of you about this. And you've literally said to me, dude, disciple the nations? I just want disciples in my home. I just want to be able to disciple my own heart. I can't think about what's going on in Mexico or where God might send me or or my neighbor. I'm too busy in here. And that's why we've got to bring the 30,000 foot flyover and put it on the ground. That's why I say so often, we have to think globally while we're acting locally. Just notice that Jesus' command isn't just go. It's to make disciples. Notice, it's a call to make followers of Christ, disciples of Christ, not just converts. It is really a call to rub shoulders with people and to know people and to enter into their world and to their issues so that when they do respond to Christ when you're sharing the gospel, you're able to disciple them and bring them along to Christ following. To make followers of Christ means it's they're students of His Word. They're devoted to Him. They're worshipers of the risen Christ. They're members of His family. And that requires us to engage with people, know them, and spend time with them. I mean, making converts is simply no different than parents leaving their newborn child 
in the delivery room and expecting the physician to take care of it. We're not here making disciples. We are here to make, I mean, making converts. We're here to make disciples. And we do that by some things you'll notice in the text. We do it by going. And going simply means we are not isolated in our homes, in our friendships, in our little cliques, in our little holy huddles, and we're not isolated from a lost and a dying world. We are moving toward people because remember it's about go and tell not just come and see and we do this in everyday life as we go about making disciples see the great commission isn't about isn't simply about foreign missions which to be honest with you the american church has used it for that for so long and the sad part about that is when you read the new testament you will notice people who are very local people who stayed in the same spot for a long time and basically loved on christ in that little church And others went like Paul or Timothy or Titus. They went. It's not simply about foreign missions. It is that. But it's also about families and friends. It's about neighbors, coworkers, and employees. It's about acting locally, doing stuff around my own little area, right where my feet are at, while playing my part globally. But we also make disciples, you'll notice in the text, by calling people to trust Jesus with their lives and being baptized into the communion with Christ. This implies that we're making disciples by sharing the good news of Jesus with them and calling them to trust and obey Jesus. And baptism's like the starting line, if you will. We're basically saying, to them, come join us as we're getting in this mission with Christ. Repent and put your faith in the risen Christ and then be baptized to follow him. And we make disciples by teaching them to observe everything Jesus has taught us. This means that through our declaration and our demonstration, we tell people and show people what it means to live as followers of Christ. You're going to find something fascinating in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, you're going to notice that these people are gathering daily as believers to eat bread, hang out together, pray, listen to teaching. And then you're going to notice the verses right after that, that it says the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So here's a question. How could they be gathering together daily at the temple, hanging out all that time, and yet the Lord is bringing people to them? I'll tell you how. They were inviting their non-Christian friends into those gatherings. Those non-Christian friends were observing the way they were living and the transformation that had taken place from their lives. And these Christian people were saying, listen, this is the reality of the gospel of Christ and how it's changed me. Come and meet with a group of transformed people. And if you will, in a sense, they were observing Christian people interacting together. We're going to talk about this next week as we talk about the church on mission for the gospel. And what you're going to notice is, disciple-making is very everyday. It's very everyday. It's not a big event. It's not an outreach program or for special elite Christians. This is boots on the ground, living real life around real people and engaging them for the sake of the Great Commission. It's about real people doing real disciple-making every day. And in this series, we're going to talk about practical outworking of how this works out so that you can see you've got a part to play as you, as you think globally and you act locally. This is like moms and dads sharing the gospel with their kids and raising them in Christ. 
It's about friends faithfully and respectfully sharing the gospel with their non-Christian friends and then helping them grow to become more and more like Jesus, the one whom they trust, so that they can become disciple makers as well. This is about employers and employees treating others with such grace and being absolutely great at their jobs to demonstrate the power of Christ in their lives that looks so different than the complaining world around them. It's about serving our community in practical, real ways and seizing moments to declare something about this Savior that we all love. What we're going to see is that small-town people like me and you, with seemingly small gifts and abilities, play a huge role in the Great Commission. We think globally while we're acting locally. It's a whole lot like the game of chess, where every move of every piece works together for the strategy of capturing the opponent's king. Every move of our going from here, baptizing and teaching, is about making disciples and acting locally while thinking globally that this is how God is accomplishing the Great Commission. As we live out our lives and declare the glory of Christ, where we are, we're playing our part in that Great Commission. So listen. Do you see your place in this great commission? This isn't about asking, where am I gifted? You know, what are my spiritual gifts? No, this is asking another question. Where has God providentially placed you in your life? Why do you live on Garden Valley? Why is your workplace this particular workplace? Why is your cubicle planted next to this particular individual? Why is it every day that you go to the same coffee shop and you're meeting the same individual? What is God doing in those moments to put you face-to-face, providentially, every day, right in the way where you can make disciples of people? Do you see your place? Do you see why God gave you the certain interests and hobbies and passions that he gave you? I have wondered, why am I such a baseball nut? What is the deal with it? My wife has wondered, why is he such a baseball nut? And I look around the room and I see young men that God has allowed the gospel to go into through this glorious, the greatest game on earth, right? I mean, (laughs) why has God done this? See, we, we think globally while acting locally. Friend, where's your part? Where are the friendships and relationships right now that you know of that God just, you, you can see them. You see them right in your face. And you're like, man, I, I need to represent Jesus better in front of this person. I, I need to share the gospel with this person. Make that a matter of prayer. Target that in your heart. That's playing your part in this great commission. Now let's look at the last point which is a most remarkable promise. And we'll see this in verse 20. And this is incredibly important to your going and teaching and and making disciples. And behold, I'm with you even to the end of the age. See, the king who has all authority in heaven and earth, who has commanded us to go and make disciples of all nations, notice what he says. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. I'll be right with you. I'm not going anywhere. This means our king, who has all authority in heaven and earth, will empower us with his presence to go and make disciples. This promise from King Jesus is about helping us accomplish the Great Commission. He will never leave us, nor will he forsake us. Listen, what God 
always commands, you need to know God always empowers you to do. He would not tell you to go and make disciples if he did not give you the power to go do it. What he demands of you, he provides for you to do it. Leon Morris wrote this. He said, this gospel, Matthew, opens with the assurance that in the coming of Jesus, God will be with his people, and it closes with the promise that the very presence of Jesus Christ will never be lacking in his faithful followers. Now, you know what this means to you in real life, right? It means that Jesus will be with you as you go to your neighbor. It means that tomorrow morning when you get up to go to work, Jesus will be with you. It means that when you decide to invite your non-Christian neighbors into your home to hang out and maybe have a dinner and just be hospitable to show them what a Christian family looks like and begin to teach them about praying over our meals and the power of Christ in our lives, he will be with you. It means he will empower you in moments you need to talk to your coworkers. Pray the prayer that I pray regularly. Lord, I'm a coward. You know this about me. When it's a moment to speak the gospel, open my mouth and speak it. And let me just say what you would want me to say. And he will be with you. If you're in the far-reaching jungles of Brazil or you're in the concrete jungle of Portland, Jesus promises he will be with you in your sports practices, at the art classes, in banks or in grocery stores. He will be with you. Do you see this remarkable promise? And you know these moments. You're getting your hair done by your hairstylist and suddenly a conversation comes up about the challenge she's having at home and you know it's on the tip of your tongue and that moment, speak and pray and his presence will be with you. So don't forget what this commission has taught us. The commission begins with worship. Are, are you, are you this enthralled with your king? Are you amazed at what he's done for you to just forgive you of your sin? I don't know if it's because I'm getting older, but I marvel at God's patience with me. Are you amazed at his rejoicing over you with loud singing because of Christ? It starts with worship. The power is his authority in heaven and on earth. So we can go because he's already got authority. So are you living as if your king reigns over all things? Does what come out of your mouth at work or at home indicate you're a child of God believing that the king is on his throne doing what he said he'd do? The Great Commission is a fulfillment of what God has promised. Are you playing your part in this global story of what God is doing? See, Jesus promises that he will always be with us to help us. Listen to John Piper's words as we close and just, just let your heart be adjusted to this. God is pursuing with omnipotent passion a worldwide purpose of gathering joyful worshipers for himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He has inexhaustible enthusiasm for the supremacy of his name among the nations. Therefore, let us bring our affections in line with his. And for the sake of his name, let us renounce the quest for worldly comforts 
and join his global purpose. And I would add, right where you are. Let's pray. Father, we we want to be goers. We want to be people who get up off our couch and disciple our kids. We want to be people who are sharing the gospel and representing the gospel well in our workplaces. We want to serve our community with greater joy and excitement. Forgive us where we haven't done any of those things. And this morning, as you are adjusting us and convicting us of our sin, we, we lay that before you. God, we, we confess that we have been more about comfort than we have your commission. We confess that we've been more about our entertainment than we have about the expansion of your gospel. We confess that we're more controlled by fear than we are amazed at your authority. And thank you that you are revealing these things to us because you care about your glory, but Lord, you also care about us. You know that this global work that you have started is the only mission on the planet and in the universe that will give us exceedingly great joy. So, Father, would you adjust our affections? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.